know how many of you have seen or attended Fiddler on the Roof, but sort of a classic song from that. It's a little cheesy and it's a little stereotypical, but it actually implies that everything that's done in the Bible or the Jewish tradition is all based out of just tradition. But actually, there's deep meaning behind the traditions. There's deep reasons for some of the traditions. And sometimes what the Bible describes isn't necessarily what the traditions that developed from that point actually talk about. And so it's easy to get confused, whatever your spiritual background is, to what does God want and what does he want from me? So we're going to look at some of these traditions and see if we can answer some of our questions. Yeah, I think a, a struggle I hear with folks many, many times is I, I wish God would show me who he is. I wish God would show me what he wants from me. I wish he would make it clear. Was the person that came from God, was it, was, is it Judaism, is it Buddhism, is it Islam, is it Muhammad? I wish God would just show up and make it clear. In fact, several years ago, we have had several rabbis on stage with me over the years. Where we've talked about what the Bible says, what the Old Testament says, is Jesus you know, the, the coming Messiah? And those rabbis who we've talked together on stage have said, the one thing I can tell you for sure is that Jesus is being Jesus, being involved in Jesus means you're not Jewish. I said, really? Now, that's interesting to me because Jesus was Jewish. He had a Jewish family. He attended all the Jewish festivals. He had Jewish disciples. And early on in the church days, they were debating whether or not this message of Jesus was for the Gentiles because it was so Jewish. I remember one time we were on stage uh, having a little discussion and uh, the rabbi over at CCD, he said to me, well, I got one question for you. I go, what is it? He said, can you tell me once and for all who killed Jesus? I kind of instinctively said, I did. And he was shocked by that because he, as many of us know, there's a terrible tradition of people who are followers of Christ, Christians, persecuting the Jewish people because allegedly they killed Christ. I said, no, the reason Jesus died is because of me, because of my wrongdoing. And the one thing he would say that God showed us for sure is that Christians apparently hate Jewish tradition. And number two, that being Jewish means you're not a follower of Jesus. And I want to investigate that together in this series. The second thing I notice is that I think a lot of us wish God would tell us what he wants. What do you want from me? Do I follow the pillars of Islam? Do I follow the path of enlightenment? Am I a good person? How do you know when you've done enough? There's a Christian sociologist named Christian Smith, and he has done extensive research on the cultural moods or the belief system of culture today. And he describes what most people in America believe in a nationwide survey of millennials and teenagers. And he said that most people today believe in what he calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And here's the basic belief. Moralistic. God basically wants us to be good people, do the right thing. We may not know exactly what right and wrong is, but in general, we have a good idea. Try and do that. Two, it's therapeutic. When you do good things, you get good rewards. When you do bad things, you, you get bad consequences. Deism, there is a God, but he's not involved in your life. You don't get to know God. He tells you what to do. He puts that good, good, bad thing on your heart. If you follow him, you get into heaven. All good people go to heaven. God wound up the universe, but he's not involved. Unless things get really bad, he might step in for a moment. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. What's interesting is that belief, which is a common, recognizes maybe that's what you believe. That is almost the opposite of what the Bible describes. That's almost the opposite of what the message of Jesus describes. You're like, well, how can that be, Chad? If most people believe that, why wasn't God clear? Why didn't he let us know? If that's not it, then what is the truth? And that's what we're going to look at today. Because the festivals, the Jewish festivals that God set out through Moses that were affirmed by Jesus, 
the festivals were like God's show and tell. They show us who he is and they tell us what he wants. They're God's show and tell. And one of the things in order to fully understand God's show and tell is you have to understand the difference between being Western and Eastern. For example, part of an Eastern teaching style is that people will participate. So I'm going to ask you to participate as we sort of go into this. When you think of God and attributes of God, what do you think of? So just holler out an attribute of God that you think of. God is good. God is love. Give me a couple more. God is powerful. Holy, gracious, forgiving. All right, let's stop there. Great. You say, well, I don't know if I believe all those things about God. But the one thing that's in common about all those things is that's how Westerners describe God. They're all abstract concepts. Good, gracious, eternal. If you're in an Eastern audience and say, what is God like? Here's what you'd hear. He's my rock. He's my refuge. He's my tower. He's my nursing mother. He's my good shepherd. He is the the area of the, the cleft of the rock I go into. You see the difference? They're all pictures. They're very concrete. And so we can't fully understand what God is teaching in an Eastern culture unless we sort of switch off of Western mode and switch into Eastern mode and look deeply into God's show and tell. Use all of our senses to see what it is he's trying to describe to us. Because when we look closely at God's show and tell, we realize that what the Bible describes is not a deistic God who, who wound up the universe and wants us to follow his will, but he's disconnected. Now, the Bible says what, he, what God offers to you and I is this. You can know God, not just know about God. You can have a relationship with God, not just empty ritual. You can be in a personal friendship with God. And so the goal of these festivals is not information, but transformation of a relationship. Give an example. It's a true story about a Hebrew professor. He was teaching over in Israel. And a group of students came in working on their master's or doctorate degree. And the first day of class, he said, Now, many of you are here today because you want to get a degree. But if you're coming to my class, we're going to come to the scriptures and to the Bible to learn what the Bible says is most important. To love God and to love others. This class is about studying the Bible so we can learn to love God, to know God, to be in relationship with God. He said, if you're here just to get a degree, there's the door. And with classic Jewish uh, humor, he says, by the way, rectal thermometers have degrees. And you know where we stick them. And I love that because it describes, there's nothing wrong with, with higher education, there's nothing wrong with degrees, but the goal of the Bible is not information, it's transformation. To know God, not just know about God. So let's look at God's show and tell. What does the bread and the water tell us about God's show and tell? When God led the people out of Egypt, one of the first things you need as you're wandering through the desert is food and water. So God reveals himself as their provider through bread and water. He provides the manna every day. He provides manna for them so they could make bread together. He says, I am your bread. You can taste of me. You can daily depend on me. You can count on me. You can trust me. And he's in this relationship of bread with his people from the very beginning as they're receiving the different festivals and the law from God. Also, if you're walking through the desert, one of the things you need more than anything is water. So God often will have water pour out of a rock to provide for his people. And those become images in the Jewish people's mind. God is our bread and God is our living water. So one of the festivals that God sets up, there's seven of them, is called the the Festival of Tabernacle, also known as Sukkot. And it is a celebration. It is a festival of celebration specifically around food, God is our bread, and around water. There's a water ceremony as part of the festival. 
And in an agrarian society where you were farmers, you had to depend on the heavens for water to sustain your life, your family, your career. Bread and water were very key. So God set up a festival that for eight days they were to celebrate and call to him to be their bread and their water. To which we're back to, well, why didn't God make it more clear? How do we know that Jesus is the bread and water? How do we know the God of the Bible is the bread and water? How do we know Buddha is not the bread and water? How do we know Muhammad is not the bread and water? Like if you're like me, it's like, God, it's so frustrating you're not clear. I mean, if you want it to be clear, why don't you have the bread, make, make it available in the bakery, right? Wouldn't that be clear? If God had said, where do you find my bread? Go to the bakery. Now that would be clear. And, and, and if you said, well, God, where do I find this living water? He says, well, it's in the faucet. You say, yeah. Now, you know, I might believe the Bible. I might give the Bible some consideration if it was that clear, if it wasn't so ambiguous. God, give us the bread in the bakery and the water from the faucet. That's exactly what he did. The prophet Micah, in describing when God would show up, how you would find him, says that he would be born into Bethlehem. And it says that out of Bethlehem, the one whose origins are from old, the one who is eternal, the one who has no beginning, if you're looking for the sent one from God, the Messiah, the eternal one, you would find him born in Bethlehem. Well, when I was in Israel a few uh, years ago, I had a chance to go to Bethlehem. And I was up on the Herodian, which is this big temple mount that, or, or house, actually, that Herod built for himself. If you look one direction, you can see modern Bethlehem. If you look the other direction, you can see this little Bedouin village that is probably about the size of what Bethlehem was during that time. Real small town. Statistically making who it is that was born in Bethlehem to a very minor amount of people to identify who would be the sent one from God. And you know what the, Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem means? Beth, if you have relatives who are Beth or Elizabeth, means house of. Lehem means bread. The house of bread. The bakery. Gee, God sent in his show and tell the bread of life was born in a bakery. Because he wanted to be that clear that we could find him. Okay, Chad, well, that's kind of cute. No, it's not cute. That's how God works in an Eastern culture, using images to make it clear. Or what about the faucet? If you talk to most people and say, well, where do you find water? They'd say, well, you go to a manger. You see, we have the idea, because we've seen way too many pageants, that, that mangers are these wooden things with grass in them and straw. All over Israel, you see mangers all over the place. They're always made out of rock. They're always carved out. And that's where you put the water for the animals. So if you talk to anyone in, in the Eastern culture and say, where do you find water? You go to the manger. So God said, well, the two images I want to use are bread and water. I'll have him born in a bakery, and I'll have him actually born and resting as an infant in the faucet. So that they would know exactly who he is and how to find him. Which is why when Jesus shows up, he says, in case you miss the metaphors, in case you miss God's show and tell, he says, I am the bread of life. And anyone who comes to me. Doesn't need to be thirsty anymore. I am the living water of God. You'll never be thirsty again. Do you see God show and tell? There's lots of uh, apologetic, there's, there's lots of reasons why statistically uh, Jesus fulfilled prophecies, but there's something even better when you begin to look at God's pictures. What is he saying here? I'll give you another example. During his ministry, Jesus is feeding 5,000 people. So he's feeding the 5,000, and it's one day as he's feeding them. There's little details that are left. And if you're a Westerner, you see numbers in the text, and you think, oh, I'm getting information. But numbers always had significance. They meant something beyond just numeric value. 
Let's look at this passage. There's a boy with five small loaves and two small fish. Why doesn't he say a few or, or uh, many? He, he specifically tells us five and two. But how far will they go among so many? So Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed them to those who received as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets. And why does he tell us 12 baskets? Why not just many baskets? Why even tell us how many are left over? He says 12. With the pieces of the five barley loaves left from those who had eaten. After this, the people seeing this saw the sign Jesus performed and they began to say, surely this is the prophet to the whole world. That's a weird conclusion. I would say, surely this is the bread maker. Surely this is the grocery guy. Surely this is the miracle worker. But their reaction to this story is, surely this is the prophet to the whole world. Now, why is that? Well, around the Sea of Galilee, there's all kinds of pluralistic society around the Sea of Galilee during Jesus' day. There are people who believe all different kinds of things. And the area where the Israelites or the descendants of Jacob lived were called the area of the Twelve. The area of the Twelve around the sea. And then the other area where the people who did not believe in Judaism or, or certainly not Christianity, which hadn't invented yet, they called that the area of the Seven. So the writer is telling us that Jesus comes and he's actually the area that he's performing this miracle is right on the edge of the area of the Jewish community and the area of the Gentile community. And he does a miracle involving the number Seven area of the seven and in number 12 the area of the 12 he's saying i have come to be the bread and the water to all people of all times to the area of the 12 if you're jewish and to the area of the gentiles if you're the area of the seven which is why the audience reacts and says wow this is the prophet to the whole world and jesus does something really weird they're right in the middle of this conversation about him saying i'm the bread of life come to me i will feed you i will nourish you and he said i gotta go he gets in a boat he travels about Tenish miles. You can see the Sea of Galilee is real small. Gets over and he stops at Capernaum and he starts the conversation up. The people seeing him wander around the shore and they meet him up in Capernaum. And as if nothing's happened, he starts the conversation over again or just right where he left off. Here's what he says. They say, what must we do? Tell us what God wants. What must we do to the works of God require? And Jesus says, here's what God wants from you. The work of God is this, to believe. To believe. He doesn't say to do. He says to believe. What God wants from you is to believe in the one he sent. They said, well, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they say, we've been looking for bread. We know the sent one from God will be bread. And to which Jesus says, very truly, I tell you. It's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's saying, I am God, the bread come down. Just like the manna came down, I've come down to be with you. But why did Jesus not have this whole conversation over there at the same location? Instead, he makes them travel or seek him out to come to Capernaum. Well, again, God show and tell. I actually got a chance to visit Capernaum. If you see the octagon-shaped building, that's Peter the Apostle's house. They've excavated it. Why does he make people come to Capernaum to finish the conversation? It's God's show and tell. Capernaum literally means the place of repentance or the place of comfort. That the way you find the bread of life is you come to repentance. Now, what does the word repentance mean? 
The word repentance simply means to turn from whatever it is you are nourishing and turn to something else. God says, come and nourish yourself on me. I am the bread of life. Nourish yourself on who I am. But in order to do that, you've got to first seek me out and you've got to turn from nourishing yourself on your fame, nourishing yourself on your status, nourishing your sense of identity from your beauty, nourishing your sense of identity from your performance. Instead of feeding off what you need to to feel good about yourself, to feel important, to feel valued, instead of nourishing yourself on that, you need to repent or turn of that and nourish yourself on me, the bread of life. And that same city that is the city of repentance also means the city of comfort. That bread that never satisfied, it's like a treadmill. This is the bread that does satisfy and brings real meaning and purpose to your life. God show and tell. And when we come to the Feast of Tabernacle, God is going to use the bread and the water as people gather together for eight days to begin to see more of what God's describing about who he is and what he's trying to do. So I want you to watch a short video that will describe what it is that's happening at Tabernacle and how it points to Christ. Let's watch. Leviticus chapter 23, it describes the eight days. The first day is a day of rest. The eighth day was a day of rest as well. But the seven days in between were building up to a party, a celebration. And so coming down the center aisle, coming through town would be a priest. And with him would be all kinds of, of flute players and music players. And music would begin to play as he walked through town with two pitchers. With one pitcher he had wine, with the other pitcher was empty. He'd make his way over to the pool of Siloam. Pool of Siloam is the same place that Jesus healed a man who was blind by putting mud on his eyes. And he would scoop up some water from the pool. The, the crowd would begin to gather and the cheering and the kids would gather out like you're going to a, to a July 4th parade or a picnic. And you'd, you'd march through town. Now you have the water and you're cheering. God was going to provide for us. God was going to give us the rain that we need for our crops. And you'd wander through town and you're on your way to the temple. As you wander to the temple, the crowd continued to gather. The music continued to build. People are so excited the last day, the day seven of the ceremony, is called the Great Day of Celebration. As you got closer and closer, the people began to cheer and yell. And they began to wave their palm branches and say, God, you need to provide us the rain. Our business will not survive. Our crops will not survive if you do not provide. And as they made their way to the temple, the priests would take the wine and say, God, the previous harvest is here. And we give you our very best. We pour out a wine offering to you. Thankful that you give us the fruit of our labor that you are the provider, that you are the provider one. And at the culmination of the ceremony, he would pull out the water and say, if God doesn't provide rain for us, we're not going to survive. Let us call out that God will be our provider for our business, for our family, for our lives. And people would begin to cheer and wave and celebrate. Give us rain. Give us rain. We need water from heavens. And all of a sudden, he would pour out the water. And as the water came out, the people would cheer, and they would celebrate, and they would pray, saying, God, be our, be our provider, be our living water that we need. And then the music would continue to build, and all of a sudden, they would begin to sing Psalm 118. So I want you to imagine, you don't need to stand up to stay seated during this, but imagine this is a modern retelling of Psalms 118. Imagine we're in the temple. Crowds gathered all around. There's cheering. There's music. 
And all of a sudden, everyone begins to sing Psalm 118. Let's give thanks to God for what He has done and give thanks to, to God for what He will do. Let's listen together. So there would be great celebration as they were calling out to God, thanking Him. The reason they were living in booths is because during those eight days in the booths, you look back at your house, at modern day, you look back at your car and you think, look at everything God's provided for us. Living out in this little tent reminds me of all the things I take for granted. It brings up a spirit of gratitude in me. Jesus attended Sukkot and Tabernacles many times. In fact, you can imagine, there was one time while they were pouring the water, the culmination of the ceremony, and a young rabbi yelled out, I am the living water, and he who comes to me will never thirst. And all of a sudden, people are like, this guy's claiming to be the living water that we've called for and prayed for all these years. And that when you believe in Him sent by God, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. See, this message is so different from moralistic, therapeutic deism. You can know God. You can experience God. And, and life is not about knowing what God wants you to do. It's about knowing God and loving God. And therefore, because you love Him and trust Him, you want to do what He wants you to do. I don't know if you saw Mayor Bloomberg this week was interviewed. And here's an example of moralistic therapeutic deism, the very opposite of what we're describing here. The New York Times predicted, uh, he predicted, Mayor Bloomberg, that his crusades against guns and smoking and obesity would serve him well in the afterlife. He said, quote, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not even stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, besides the, Huber, the, the, the arrogance of that, notice his statement. If there's a God, I don't even know if there's a God. I certainly don't know if I know him. I just know that if you do good stuff, you get into heaven. It's the opposite of what the Bible describes. The whole point of heaven is being with the one that you love. You, you begin to love him on earth, and you want to love him and continue to be with the person you love in heaven. In fact, sometimes it's thinking, God, you owe me because of what I've done is the biggest obstacle to people coming to hear the message of grace. Contrast that with Bono. Not somebody you'd consider Mr. Moral. But as he has wrestled with different religions over the years, he says it's a mind-blowing concept that God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met with an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea of grace. It upends all of the you reap what you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff, he says. That's between me and God. And I'd be in deep trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. I'd be in deep you-know-what, he says. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And do you see the contrast there? I'll tell Bono you see you clap for him. <laughs> Bono actually is closer to the message of grace. I don't deserve it, but there's a God who sought after me. I don't live up to my own standards. I need God to justify me, to forgive me. That's the message. And the bread and the water show us who he is. But so do the bread and the light. You see, at the center point of tabernacle or Sukkot is 
a menorah. That menorah represents several things, one of which there are seven feasts that God set out. And again, look at God's show and tell. The feasts are Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, tabernacle. Before I get to the other ones, God's show and tell. Did you know Jesus? Historical records tell us that he died on the very date of the festival of Passover that God set up thousands of years earlier. Did you know he was buried on the very feast of unleavened bread, the night that everyone was praying that God would bring out of the ground that which they most needed? Did you know that he was raised from the dead on the very feast of first fruits, when you would bring out of the ground to God the best you had? Did you know that it was 50 days later at the Jewish feast of Pentecost, when Moses had brought the, te- the word down, the, the law down to the people, that was the very day that he sent his Holy Spirit and this idea of the church was born, on that very day. The Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Yom Kippur. And let's talk about Tabernacle. The Feast of Tabernacle, or Sukkot, was, was often about the menorah. In fact, King Herod built a massive one, 75-foot-tall candles in the temple. Because the temple's on the mount, when you lit the temple yard, it lit the entire city. And these giant... Uh, candles that he had that pointed to the sky were filled sometimes with olive oil the wicks themselves rolled priestly garments and it was like a culmination there was a picnic area there in the temple and you would wait as they would climb up 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 the ladder and as they went to light the uh, the candles there'd be cheering and celebration this was the festival of lights looking forward to the day that god sent the light of the world and again at the culmination of that ceremony as they climbed up the ladder and they lit the light and illuminated the, the entire town A young rabbi yelled out, I am the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness. He's claiming to be the light of the menorah. More than that, the festival happens in the fall, September, October, depending on the year. It's on a lunar calendar. A time when shepherds are out in their fields by night. It's called a festival of celebration. It's got these giant 75-foot birthday candles. It's a ceremony that we're told to celebrate as a party for generations, for all generations forever. When the angels appear to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, they actually say to them, rejoice, greatly rejoice. And from that place in Bethlehem, you can actually see the Temple Mount and you could see the light going. It's very probable that not only did he die on Passover, was buried on unleavened bread, was raised on first fruits, but that he was actually born on the Feast of Tabernacle. God show and tell. What's the, what's the probability of any one person fulfilling that? You know, say, well, I don't know if the Bible's true. We'll get to that in about five weeks or four weeks. But if it's true, if, if somebody really did live and have these kind of things interact with it, isn't God going out of his way to show and to tell us everything we need? You can believe in him, not because you're naive, not because you lack evidence, but because you have evidence. You see, God's show and tell is to show and dwell. John chapter 1, verse 14, we're introduced to, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh, which literally means the Word tabernacled with us. The Word came to live with us, to dwell with us. And when you are around the Word, you experience grace and truth. Jesus is saying, I am the tabernacle one. I am Sukkot. I am the one who came to dwell among you. I, I didn't want you to know God as a concept or a theory. I wanted you to know him as a person. I am a person you can know, you can love, you can develop friendship with. And after you're in your booth, 
and you're thanking God for everything you take, you know, take for granted, you're reminded of everything he's provided for you, you then get to eat. And we just made these this morning. Maybe when you came in, you smelled the bread. They made these for me. For me. And, oh, they smell so good. They're still warm. And, oh, let's taste some. Oh, fresh bread. You'd be sitting in your booth. You'd be eating together. You'd be celebrating together. Again, it was a time of festivities. You know, you might even have a little entertainment while you're doing it. You know, you would be enjoying the time together. And you would be saying, this is what God is like. He's my daily bread. He's the daily one I go to. He's the one I thank. He's the one he provides for me. And you're suddenly aware of his comfort. You're aware of his strength. You're aware of his wisdom. You're aware of his guidance. And you begin to celebrate for seven days that there is a God who cares enough about you that with all of the atoms and all of the stars and all of the universes going on, he has time for you to dine with you, to dwell with you, and to be with you. Man, it smells so good. And it tastes so good. I wish I had enough for everybody. But I've only got about ten here, and I'm not Jesus. I can't multiply it. But I want you to know that as the ceremony builds, everyone began to celebrate. So I want the band to do one more song. Maybe it's a song you know about celebration. And again, I want you to picture just a party. The party atmosphere of Sukkot was that of celebration and eating and dining together. So we'll put the words on the screen behind you if you want to sing along with. But let us celebrate a God. And maybe you're new to this thing and say, I don't know if I believe in, in God and I'm still in that deist category. But just say, hey, God, I want to move in your direction. I want to begin today to say, I want to taste and see that you are good. Let's sing together. All right, so we did have enough for everybody. So this is a celebration of Sukkot. So so hold on to that bread for a moment. Feel the warmth of it. This is what God wants you to know the warmth of a relationship with him is like. And smell it. This is the aroma of being around God's attributes. This is what the aroma of love smells like and faithfulness and joy. This is what the smell of patience looks like. This is what courage tastes like. And then take another bite of it together. And maybe this is your way of saying, God, I'm on this journey, but I want to thank you for the things I've forgotten to say thank you for. God, you are the one that provides for me, my job, my family. Thank you, God. I want to move in your direction. The Bible says it this way. Taste and see that God is good. Let's celebrate and make this an act of celebrating that he is good. Let's continue singing together. Well, as we head out this week, I just want to encourage you to take the spirit of Sukkot and take some moments this week and say, God, I want to step back and say, I thank you for what you've given me. I want to celebrate what you have. And God, I want to investigate who you are. And I want to take the show and tell seriously. And I want to begin to maybe dig in the Bible for the first time. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Begin to find out about what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. God wants to show and and tell because he showed and dwelled. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week for Jewish Jesus Part 2. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes. And if you want to meet some people, if you're new to Horizon, third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks for being here today. See you again.